a winning constructor, messy strategy calls, and five DNFs. This week I'm talking all about the Japanese Grand Prix. So get ready, because you've been summoned to the steward's office. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the steward's office. I'm Syra, and this week we're talking all about the Japanese Grand Prix. I'm going to give you guys my apologies in advance, but I've just started Invisalign treatment. I've got my first set of trays in and I am working around getting used to them in my mouth. So I sometimes feel like I have a bit more of a pronounced lisp than usual, but that's why it has gotten better since I first had them in, but it does creep up on me sometimes. There was a lot going on during this race week, a lot going on on track, a couple of things happening off track. So let's get into it. And as usual, let's start off with some of the news pieces that we had off track. We had three driver re-signings this weekend, which is probably the most re-signings we've had in one go throughout this entire F1 season. So the first one we heard news of was Oscar Piastri, who has re-signed with McLaren until the end of 2026. So Oscar already had a contract that would take him with McLaren until the end of 2024, but obviously Zach Brown, Andreas Stella and McLaren are just so happy with the progress he's making. They really want to lock him in and make sure he's staying with the team. And Oscar is obviously very happy with what McLaren are doing with the car right now and signed on to that contract that extended his stay with McLaren. Amazing, amazing news to hear that he'll be sticking around on the F1 grid until at least 2026. I think McLaren know that once his contract came to an end at the end of 2024, he was going to be a hot commodity. There were going to be multiple teams up and down the grid that were going to want to sign him if he keeps up the progress that he's made during his rookie year. I can only see it getting better for him, to be honest with you. There were going to be a lot of teams that were going to be after him, so McLaren just wanted to lock him in and make sure that he's sticking around for the long term, and they've managed to do that. The other piece of news that we had come out was from Alpha Tauri, and they're a team that we've had so much talk about, so many rumours about who is going to have those 2024 seats. They finally announced their driver lineup for 2024, and they have opted to keep Yuki Tsunoda and Daniel Ricciardo. Liam Lawson will be staying with the team as their reserve driver, and he's obviously still a Red Bull associated driver. Like I said, there were so many rumours going on about those two seats in AlphaTauri. Was Yuki going to stay on with the team? Were AlphaTauri going to have Liam Lawson and Daniel Ricciardo in there instead of having Yuki there? For me, I thought it was logical to keep Yuki. He has shown improvement this year, shown improvement year on year. Knows AlphaTauri very well, especially the recent AlphaTauri, so it made sense to keep him in my opinion. And I know there have been arguments about whether Daniel Ricciardo or Liam Lawson should take that seat, but AlphaTauri have opted to keep Daniel Ricciardo. Liam Lawson, I think they're really going to be aiming to give a seat to in 2025. He's shown exceptional pace, exceptional racecraft. I really hope he does get a seat soon on the grid, but we will have to wait and see for now. He is going to be a reserve driver. So those re-signings, I think, were the biggest pieces of news that were coming out from the race weekend. The other thing that we did end up hearing was that the FIA did admit they had been too lenient on both Max Verstappen and Logan Sargent at the Singapore Grand Prix when they were impeding during qualifying, and that they should have been given a three-place grid penalty. They can't retrospectively give those grid penalties out, apparently, so it is what it is, but it just 
brings into question the consistency of decisions from the stewards and from the FAA once again. And I brought this up in the last podcast episode I did for the Singapore Grand Prix. I mentioned drivers who were in similar situations to Max Verstappen, where the team hadn't told their driver that there was a car coming up on a fast lap, so the driver wasn't able to take any action early on, but they still got penalised. So I'm glad to know that is still the rule, that there haven't been any changes and that drivers will still face a three-place grid penalty if they are impeding a driver during qualifying. But yeah, the consistency is an issue that needs to be ironed out and needs to be sorted out, really. Impeding during qualifying, I feel like it normally is a slam dunk penalty, especially when a driver is on a fast lap and you are ruining their chance of getting through Q1 or Q2, potentially getting pole position if they're in Q3. So the FIA did come out and admit that yes, that decision was wrong. It should have been a three-place grid penalty for both Logan Sargent and Max Verstappen. How much comfort that is to the drivers that they had impeded during qualifying, I'm not sure. Probably not much, but hopefully we get a little bit more consistency with stewarding decisions and penalties as we get to the end of the season. Let's get into the actual race again and when the cars were on track. So free practice on Friday and the first half of Saturday were fairly chilled out to be fair. We had one crash from Pierre Gasly in FP2 but otherwise generally an incident free practice session across all three of them. Mercedes looked like they were struggling with pace so badly on Friday. It looked just awful for them. I know the drivers had said that they weren't really happy with the balance of the car. So they had a lot of work to do overnight. Saturday it did look better. The drivers seemed a bit more comfortable. But yeah, Friday was not good for them. Red Bull, on the other hand, seemed to be back in fighting form, fit and ready to go again. Singapore, a long distant memory behind them. And I think everyone was expecting that bounce back from them. I don't know many people who genuinely thought that they had lost their pace and that Japan was going to be bad for them. I wasn't someone that thought it was down to the technical directive. I just thought, yeah, Singapore is a track that is not suited to the Red Bull car. And that seemed to be the case because practice in Japan proved no problems. Max Verstappen was once again topping the timing sheets with no problem. Qualifying was a little bit interesting. So thankfully, no impeding from any of the drivers. So we didn't have to worry about stewards decisions and penalties there. Logan Sargent, though, on his first flying lap, right at the end of that flying lap, ended up crashing and going into a barrier. And that caused a red flag to come out with, I think, around nine minutes left of the session. So it was plenty of time for drivers to come back out and set another fast lap, or if they hadn't set one at all, to put a time in. So at least in that respect, it wasn't a massive issue because it was towards the beginning of the session. Logan's car looked a little bit of a mess, though. It was not in a good shape, thankfully. He was okay. He managed to jump out of the car and get back to the pit lane with no problem. But you could see the look on the mechanics' faces in Williams when they saw the work that they were going to have to do to get that car ready for the race on Sunday. And a very lucky James Valls was on the pit wall this weekend, and I'm sure he'd prefer not to be when his driver has an incident like that. But of course, the commentators went straight to him on the pit wall to ask him about that crash and what he thought about it. And in general, he was trying to be fairly positive. He wasn't putting Logan Sargent down. But what he did say is that the crashes are having a bit of an effect on the team because of the cost cap. 
when they're trying to make spares because of these crashes, it means the money comes away from different areas. Didn't name those areas, but you're going to assume it is things like car development. And the other thing I think a lot of us noted when he was talking to Crofty on the pit wall was the fact that Logan is driving with parts of an older spec car. He doesn't have the most upgraded parts on his car right now. And that is down to the crashes that he's had and because they can't produce those parts all the time and quick enough and under the cost cap. So that is causing a little bit of problem with his car. But this is, I think, the second time in four races that Logan Sargent has crashed during qualifying, which isn't a stat that he's going to want, especially when he's fighting for his Williams seat. But yeah, Logan Sargent crashed out of Q1 very, very early on and didn't even manage to set a fast lap time. No other crashes or incidents in qualifying, though. Guan Yu did have a tracks limit violation and got kicked out of Q1. Valtteri Bottas also joined him in being kicked out of Q1, which meant that both Alfa Romeos were out in Q1 for the second time in a row. Aston Martin not having a good time during qualifying. Stroll was eliminated in Q1. I really don't know what happened there. To be fair, the Aston didn't look amazing during qualifying. They've been struggling to find the pace that they had during the beginning of the season anyway. But Japan didn't look like it was going to be a track that was going to give them much joy in terms of points and where they started on the grid. But yeah, Lance Stroll booted out in Q1 as well. Fernando Alonso got into Q3, but you could tell he was struggling. He just didn't have the pace of the other cars that were in Q3 with him. Yuki Tsunoda, the hometown hero for the weekend, managed to make it into Q3 with the AlphaTauri. Those upgrades look to be working, at least in terms of qualifying pace. So it was great to see him up there and in the top 10. Max Verstappen, to no one's surprise really, did take pole position. And I know before quality, there was talk of the McLarens being in a fight with Max for pole position. I personally thought it was going to take Max maybe just having a bit of a squirrely lap, maybe making a little bit of a mistake going over a white line or a curb somewhere to be able to let the McLarens really have an in in getting pole position. They are close with Max, closer than I think any team has been this season, but I just don't think they had Max's and Red Bull's out-and-out pace. So yes, Max Verstappen got pole position for the Japanese Grand Prix. And the bigger news, I think, for me was the fact that Oscar Piastri got his first front row start in Formula One. Now, that is the first time a rookie has started on the front row since 2017 when Lance Stroll had managed to do it. So it isn't something we see happen all the time. And absolutely amazing qualifying lap from him. Really, really chuffed with that and an amazing achievement. And just for McLaren overall, to be fair, because we had Lando Norris starting in P3, so a 2-3 for McLaren in quality is nothing to be upset about at all. Sergio Perez ended up qualifying in fifth place. He was starting behind Max, both the McLarens, and Charles Leclerc in the Ferrari. He was nearly eight tenths off of Max's pole time. Eight tenths is a lot of time, especially when you are in the same team in the same car. And that is his third top five start, I think, in 11 races. Which, considering the pace of the Red Bull, considering what Max Verstappen can do in that car, a little bit surprising when you just look at the stats there. You would definitely expect that Red Bull to be in the top five more consistently, to be in the top three way, way more consistently. But it has been a little bit of a struggle, especially during qualifying for him. 
And then going into the race on Sunday, 6am start for those of us in Britain. I really had to force my eyes awake for this so I could actually keep up what was going on. I could make notes. I love having the timing screen up as well so I can kind of see who's in a close battle and what pit windows look like. So honestly, I'm quite impressed with myself that I managed to keep up with as much as I did, but it was a struggle. But I know that there are people, especially in Australia, Japan, that side of the world, where they are having to wake up at really strange hours to watch the races, especially the ones in Europe. So my hat's off to those of you who are waking up at odd hours to keep up with F1. I don't know how you do it week on week, but you are definitely way stronger than I am because I struggled this morning. So my alarm went off around half past five, right? So I woke up, checked my phone and thought, let me just see if there's been any news that's happened in F1 overnight, because you never know. And the minute I open Instagram, the first thing I see is the fact that Logan Sargent will be starting from the pit lane and has a 10 second time penalty. Which was not the news I was expecting to wake up to. Maybe the pit lane start, not so much the 10 second time penalty. It was a bit of a mixed bag of a race. There were a couple of pockets of action. But if I'm honest with you, a lot of the race, when you'd look at the driver tracker on the Formula 1 app, there weren't a lot of cars that were really within DRS zone of each other for a good couple of laps. There were just gaps between all of these drivers, a lot of people just being able to drive in clean air and have a fairly normal race. But that's not to say there was no action at all. So let's have a look at some of the main sticking points from the race and then we will have a dive into how most of the teams did. The start was a mess, for lack of a better word, and I'm so glad I managed to wake up properly by this point because I would not have been able to understand what was going on otherwise. Now, the first thing I saw was Lewis Hamilton going off into the grass. I had no clue what happened there, and then suddenly a yellow flag is coming out, suddenly there's a safety car. It was a mess. So, further back, and I mean right at the back of the grid, Bottas had drifted left at the start, which people do during the Japanese Grand Prix at the start, that's not a problem, but he ended up hitting Alex Albon. He drifted right then after that hit and ended up hitting Esteban Ocon. Debris came off of the car and that ended up hitting the other Alfa Romeo of Zhou Guan Yu. So there was already a mess there. Then looking further up the grid, both of the Ferraris and Perez were going three wide. Hamilton also had a very good start and was able to join in in that sort of race. It was four wide. Perez ended up knocking into Lewis Hamilton. Hamilton went off into the grass, but that contact did end up breaking Sergio Perez's front wing. The debris on track did mean that there was a safety car, and under the safety car, Sergio Perez went into the pits to go and replace his front wing. He dropped to about... 17th or something along those lines during the safety car because obviously the field was still very tightly packed at that point they hadn't even gone through a full racing lap so everyone was very very close at the restart we end up seeing logan Sargent lock up into one of the turns valtteri bottas was trying to make a move as he locked up and logan ended up hitting valtteri Valtteri spun into the hairpin, had to do a 180 and then get back onto track. And that was at the race restart. After Valtteri had just pitted after the incident at the start of the race, he was just having a mare right at the start of the race. It was a mess for him. 
they did end up calling him back in on lap seven, had a really good look at the car. That took about 30 seconds and let him back out. But when he went back out on lap eight, he radioed into the team being like, look, this is undrivable. I need to pit. And they ended up retiring his car. So that was our first retirement of the race. That incident that Logan had with Valtteri, Logan Sargent got given a five-second time penalty for, so he was not having a good weekend. And then we found out that Sergio Perez was also going to have to serve a five-second time penalty, not because of the incident at the start of the race with Lewis and the Ferraris, but because he had basically committed a safety car infringement. He had overtaken under the safety car when he was coming in and out of the pit, hadn't given those places back, and therefore the stewards handed him a five-second time penalty. It was a little bit quieter after that, no more incidents, until lap 21. On lap 21, Sergio Perez took way, way too much speed into one of the corners, locked up a little bit, and at this point he was trying to pass Kevin Magnussen. Kevin had taken the racing line again after getting through that corner, Sergio Perez had way too much speed, and he crashed into Kevin Magnussen. And it wasn't really a crash, but it was a knock. Kevin ended up having to spin because of it on track. Sergio Perez did manage to keep going and eventually Kevin Magnussen did as well, but probably not the way Perez expected his race to go. And as soon as that incident happened, Perez got on the radio to say, look, my front wing is broken again. So he got called back into the pits to get his third front wing of the race. And we were only 21 laps in. We did get a VSC, I think, around that point because of the debris on track, so we went to pick that up. And eventually, Paris was told just to retire the car. There was way too much damage after both incidents to really warrant him running any longer. Logan Sargent also ended up retiring. I think the incident with Valtteri, even though he didn't spin into the gravel, did cause too much damage, and Williams ended up boxing his car and retiring him. Lance Stroll was told to retire from the race. He had rear wing failure. So I don't think it was anything that he necessarily did, but just the fact that his rear wing was not working and Aston Martin had to call him in and retire him. We had Alex Albon also have to retire from the race. I think they tried to run with the damage that he got from that incident during the race start. But I think in the end, Williams were like, look, there's nothing we can do. The car isn't getting any better. It's time for you to come in and retire. And I've got to be honest, guys, we only had, what, one safety car and one VSC and all of those DNFs. That was quite impressive that we didn't end up having more safety cars and VSCs considering how many DNFs we had. And there were five of them in total. We had five cars DNF from the race. Sergio Perez ended up getting back into his car at around lap 40. He did a lap, served his time penalty, then retired the car again. Interesting tactic from Red Bull. Apparently, if you don't serve your time penalty in the race you're given it, what you do get is a grid penalty for the next race. Those are what the rules say. So, obviously, Red Bull did not want him to have a grid place penalty for the next race, which will be the Qatar sprint race in two weeks' time. So, they got him to get back in the car, do a lap, pit, do another lap, and then retire. Now, it's completely fine for a car after retiring to be able to go back out on track. It's been done before. I think Daniel's done it before, and so has Kimi Raikkonen. Do I think you should be able to do it just to serve a penalty and then retire again? It's a grey area in the rules. There's nothing against it. It is a loophole that Red Bull knew that they could use, which, fair enough. But in general, do I think it should be used? Do I think it's something the FAA need to look into? Yeah, probably. I think so. 
there was a mess going on with Mercedes, their strategy and their team orders. And I will go into that in a minute. But yeah, that was a very interesting part of the race and a lot of race radios that we heard from George Russell. By the end of the race, though, Max Verstappen did cross the finish line to claim a victory at the Japanese Grand Prix, the perfect bounce back after what happened at Singapore. And in doing so, Red Bull sealed off their second consecutive Constructors' Championship and their sixth Constructors' Championship overall. So an absolutely amazing weekend for Red Bull, who I am sure are going to be celebrating this for quite a time. Lando Norris crossed the finish line in P2 and Oscar Piastri got his first ever podium in Formula 1 and he finished in P3. Both McLarens did a phenomenal job, but I'm so, so happy for Oscar Piastri to get his first front row star and then his first podium. Leclerc was in P4, Hamilton rounded off their top five, and the rest of the drivers in the points were Carlos Sainz, George Russell, Fernando Alonso, Esteban Ocon, and Pierre Gasly. Five retirements overall, and then Liam Lawson, Yuki Tsunoda, Zhou Guan Yu, and both horses were the unlucky drivers who didn't pick up any points at this race. But let us have a look at each of the teams now and what went on in their races. Now, I've got to admit, for some of the teams, I really don't know what happened during their race. We didn't hear a lot from them. They didn't show a lot from them. So I might not have a whole lot to say on some of the teams. But let's start with Red Bull. Constructors champions for the second year in a row and what a phenomenal, phenomenal season that they've had. Whether you are a Red Bull fan or not, there's no doubt they've just had an absolutely dominant, brilliant season in an amazing car. It has been an absolute rocket ship from the moment it hit the track. The only place where it struggled was Singapore so far this season. But there has been so, so much dominance in that red pillar car, especially in the hands of Max Verstappen. The gaps that he's able to pull from the rest of the field have been incredible. There was really, really no doubt about Red Bull ever not winning the Constructors' Championship, to be fair. From testing, that car has seemed so strong and it's just going from strength to strength. They've continued to develop their car. They're continuing to keep a really good gap to the drivers and the teams that are behind them. It's just been such a strong season for them and congratulations to them. Six Constructors titles, their second in a row. I'm sure Milton Keynes is going to be bouncing for a little while. Looking at their drivers, Max Verstappen just had a flawless weekend, to be honest with you. Bounced back from Singapore, free practices went well, qualifying went well with pole position and then he won the race. I mean, what more is there to say? It worked out beautifully for him. Sergio Perez, on the other hand... What a nightmare. This weekend was not his strongest weekend by far, probably one of his worst weekends. I mentioned in qualifying, he was eight tenths down on Max Verstappen. But still, starting in P5 isn't awful. He's started in places like that before. He started lower down on the grid and still managed to make his way up the field. But what an absolute nightmare of a race that he had. That incident right at the start, which was just noted as a first lap incident, I think there was no investigation really into it. It was noted with no investigation. But even then, starting down in, what, P17 after having to go into the pits and having your entire front wing be replaced, it's not the worst thing in the world when you have a car like the Red Bull in your hands, right? The error then of not following safety car procedures and obviously overtaking some of those cars when you were coming in and out of the pits did not help. 
But that five second time penalty was just there. Once again, you would expect the Red Bull to pull ahead, get a good couple of cars out of the way with very early on and then, you know, make your way up to the front slowly. That five second time penalty shouldn't have been a huge, huge disadvantage. But then that slightly stupid mistake with Kevin Magnussen completely wrecked his race. You know, having to go in for yet another front wing, have it changed twice in a race. The damage that he ended up picking up, it was just a nightmare. And on top of that, Sergio Perez now has four penalty points on his license. So I think he ended up also getting a time penalty because what happened with Kevin Magnussen as well as what happened with the safety car infringement got two penalty points each for those. So he's now up to a total of seven penalty points. You have 12 before you get a race span. So he has to be careful. He only has five points left before he gets that race span. Okay, next on the list is Mercedes. I don't know where to start with this team. Lewis Hamilton finished in fifth place. George Russell finished in seventh. Looking at those results by themselves, nothing to be ashamed of. I think that's a really good points haul from the team. They're sort of maintaining that 20-ish points gap too far in the constructors, right? So that is something at least. And when you just look at that, great, brilliant, wonderful. I wish I was a fly on the wall in Mercedes right now. I wish I knew what was going on with them because that race really highlighted some issues that I think they're going to end up having if these sort of things continue. Let's try and get into all of this now, right? So Lewis Hamilton ended up having a two-stop race, which is the normal tyre strategy for the Japanese Grand Prix. Tyre deck is very high at the circuit, so the most sensible thing to do is to be on that two-tyre strategy. George Russell opted to go on to a one-stop strategy. Him, his side, the guy, his strategy team, whoever, opted to stay on a one-stop strategy. Okay, fair enough. You wanted to roll the dice and see what happened there. If that was a late safety car, VSC, whatever, he might be able to maximise and get on the podium from it. That's fair enough. I think the problem really started for Mercedes when Lewis went in for his second pit stop and then eventually caught up with George. And it was not going to take long for Lewis to catch up with George Russell with the pace that Lewis had and the lack of pace that George had because he had slower tyres, slower older tyres. Charles ended up passing George on his newer tyres, which meant that Lewis on his newer tyres was behind George. And at this point, because Carlos Sainz was also catching up very quickly with Lewis, who was on even fresher tyres, I thought, surely at this point, what would make sense is for Mercedes to invert their cars, because Carlos is on fresher tyres compared to both of the Mercedes. Lewis only had a three-second gap to Charles Leclerc before Charles had overtaken George. Potentially would have had the chance to overtake Charles later on had Lewis been able to get past George quite quickly. But that wasn't the case. George was lapping at some points two seconds, a second and a half, a second slower than Lewis, which is to be expected because he's on those older tyres, right? And Mercedes had asked George to invert the cars and let Lewis go by. George argued back saying, no, because then Carlos will catch me and I'm trying to do what he did in Singapore and I'll give Lewis enough DRS and then, look, we'll be able to keep these positions, right? Not as easy as that, though. What Carlos was able to do in Singapore with Lando Norris and using the DRS to help Norris defend from George so Carlos could keep his win was a very different story. 
Suzuka only has one DRS zone, and that isn't even on the longest straight in Suzuka, so it would not work. So eventually, Mick put their foot down and said, no, look, it's a team order. You need to move out of the way and let Lewis pass. So he did. George got back on the radio and was like, oh, you know, if we're going to play team orders, then, you know, I think the least he can do is give me DRS so I can fight with Carlos. Lewis had built up a little bit of a gap because he was a quicker car to George at this point, had slowed down after Bonner got on the radio and was like, can you give George DRS so he can defend from Carlos? Lewis was like, okay, sure. But it wasn't enough because once again, that same tactic does not work in Suzuka like it will in Singapore. And so Carlos ended up overtaking George, but didn't manage to catch Lewis. Now, I don't know whether had George let Lewis through quicker that Lewis would have caught up with Charles. Maybe, maybe not. But that's definitely not something that was going to be possible by the time Lewis had gotten past George because there was now a six second gap between him and Charles. And by the end of the race with George, you can tell he did not have the race pace in those tyres because I think he finished around five or six seconds behind Carlos Sainz. So it seemed like such a waste to me. It was an absolute mess from Mercedes. I can't lie. It is something they definitely need to figure out. Strategy-wise this year, it's been a mess for both of their drivers. I'm quite surprised they'd have George on a one-stop strategy in Suzuka. Like I said, tyre deck is very, very high. I know you wanted to roll the dice, but definitely surprising that you would opt for that one-stop strategy with him. Ferrari generally had quite a chilled-out day. Strategy worked well for them. I think they made the most from what they had, to be honest with you. Maximised on the amount of points that they could take away. But yeah, I think it was a fairly quiet race for them in a good way. I mean, no drama, no issues with strategy or pit stops. Their pit stops are actually very, very good. So they had a fairly decent race that I think they'll be happy with coming out of Japan. Aston Martin just had a nightmare. I mean, I don't know what's going on with Aston at the moment, but they could only run one car in Singapore. Had to retire Lance from the race this time around. Fernando Alonso did end in the points, so at least he took something home. I think Aston Martin will be walking away from Japan not entirely happy, and they become more and more at risk of losing P4 in the constructors to McLaren, who we're getting on to next. What an amazing weekend for both of their drivers. P2 and 3 in quality, P2 and 3 during the race. Double podium. Oscar's first podium. I think this is the first double podium for them since Monza 21 when we had Daniel and Lando on that podium. Phenomenal, phenomenal result from them. That car looked really, really alive in Japan. It's a team that's going from strength to strength right now. I'm really excited to see their 2024 car and see how much more improved it is. I hope it's more improved at least and I hope they get closer to Red Bull. I think for me, just seeing Oscar Piastri up on that podium for the first time ever, it's just really amazing to watch. Alpine had both drivers finish in the points, which was amazing. I did not predict that for them, I can't lie. I thought we were going to have one Alpine DNF and the other Alpine not in the points. And when I saw Esteban Ocon in that incident at the start of the race, I was praying he wouldn't get his third DNF. But yes, double points for Alpine. I hear there is a little bit of, maybe drama's not the right word, confusion maybe, where the team asked Pierre Gasly to give a place back to Esteban Ocon at the end of the race. Pierre wasn't happy about it, but I'm not entirely sure what happened there. So the team itself might be happy, Pierre maybe not as happy as 
he could have been. Williams had to retire both of their cars from the race, so they're taking away absolutely nothing. And I know Alex Albon was saying that, you know, some of the tracks in this half of the season were going to be more difficult for them, but I don't think he was expecting them to both retire. So, yeah, just awful weekend for them. Both cars picking up damage and incidents. Haas, I think, had a fairly quiet race. No points for them. I mean, it was quiet except for the part where Kevin Magnussen got spun around because of Sergio Perez. Alfa Romeo, I mean, at least Shogun, you managed to carry on in the race. But this wasn't, I don't think, a very strong track for them anyway. Those upgrades not really working the way they wanted to. And finally, Alfa Tauri, 11th and 12th place. For a little while, it did look like Yuki Tsunoda was going to be able to get into the points. He was running in 10th place for a while. Wasn't meant to be, but I think their upgrades have worked well at Japan. He's hoping it will work well for the rest of the season because I would love to see both of them and when Daniel Ricciardo returns back to the car, getting some more points on the board. For driver of the day, you guys picked Oscar Piastri and I'm once again agreeing. I don't really know who else you could give it to. He had a phenomenal, phenomenal race, a phenomenal race weekend. First podium, the first of many, I am sure. I'm hoping that he manages to pick up a couple of more podiums at the end of the season now because that McLaren looks really, really strong. He seems very comfortable in it. I can't see there being a reason why he wouldn't get more podiums before the season is done. And I think that just about sums up the Japanese Grand Prix. I feel like there was a lot happening, but also at the same time, not a lot happening. A lot of drama with Mercedes. Red Bull able to just seal off that Constructors' Championship. A little less pressure on them now. And five DNFs. It just, that feels like a lot. I wasn't expecting that many. Formula One is taking a break next week, but I will be back next Tuesday for another episode. And then after that, we are heading out to the Qatar Grand Prix. Didn't head out there last year because of the World Cup with the football. Back there this year and there is going to be another sprint race. So we will see how that goes. It means there's only one practice session before they start going into qualifying, sprint qualifying, the sprint and then the race. So that's always an interesting weekend when we only have one free practice session. Thank you guys so, so much for listening. And make sure you follow me on TikTok and Instagram at stewards underscore office where I post F1 content daily and I will see you guys the next time. You are summoned to the steward's office.